Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. It's budget nighter. It's party nighter. Yes, that's right. It's federal budget 2015 already. Where does the time go when you're busy dismantling healthcare and the public service, ignoring science and trying to figure out what is up with chicks? I thought it was a good time to seek out some interesting perspectives on the future of this lucky country of ours. We'll hear from economist Stephen Kukoulos, comedian and internet sensation Amir Rahman. But first up, a man who went from unassuming country MP to superstar overnight in 2010 when he and two other independents had to decide who was going to be our Prime Minister. Was it going to be Tony Abbott or was it going to be Julia Gillard? Of course, they chose Julia and the rest is history. Although now he's retired, he still knows a fair bit about what's going on and what really makes this country tick. Be warned, this there's a bit of noise in this. It sounds like we're chatting in my Nana's sunroom, but we're actually in a cafe. So when you hear doors and stuff, it's, it's in the recording. It's not in your car or in your bedroom or wherever you are. At least it wasn't recorded on my phone like this is. Ladies and gentlemen, with the state of the nation, I give you Tony Windsor. Do you think it was in its way more democratic, the hung parliament? The oh, back benches and, yeah. and more people had a say in what was happening? I don't think there was any doubt about that. And in fact, one of the, the things that fascinated me and actually delighted me in a lot of ways uh, was that the committees of the parliament, normally in a majority parliament, the committees reflect the majority of, of the members. Yeah. So the government of the day will always have the majority on all of the committees. Mm-hmm. Now, what that does is empower the government to do what it likes to do through the committee processes. In a hung parliament, the executive of the government didn't have control over the committees. And what that did was not... A, it empowered all backbenchers. And, uh, and so more legislation was passed, tough legislation was passed, um, What's going on with the current government, do you think? In that? I mean, they're, they're really struggling to pass any legislation. The budget's been a disaster. What's well, the problem there? Well, there's, there's a number of issues, and, and it really highlights the decisions that Oakshot and myself were trying to make particularly, is that there is a hung Senate. Abbott has to deal with a hung Senate. Gillard had to deal with a hung Senate as well. Mm. So she had two houses that were hung, uh, but she was able to negotiate 
quite well with, with all sides. Uh, Tony Abbott finds that very difficult. And in fact, I was astonished only last week to hear one of the crossbench senators, a very important player, say that he'd only met Tony Abbott once. And that was over a cup of tea. Well, uh, you know, the, the position of Prime Minister is very important. And if you've got difficult decisions to make, the Prime Minister has to be called upon to try and broker the deal. But it just seems as though he's not doing that. He's leaving it uh, to others. You know, look at Christopher Pine and some of the educational stuff, for instance. It's just a you know, head against a brick wall. So they seem to enjoy you know, damaging the, their forage rather than getting something yeah. constructively done. It's not rocket science, this stuff. The first thing they should do is just go and talk to these guys. Look, we've got a problem here with the economy. Uh, we want you to be part of how we solve this rather than walking in and saying, this is what we, we're telling you what you're going to do. Mm. And, and in a lot of those cases, they were things that weren't presented last uh, election. Yeah. So, and the crossbenchers on the, in the Senate are saying, well, you didn't go to the people on this. How can you, mm. yeah, how can you front up to me and say, this and is what you're going to do? how can they? I mean, what, is that just arrogance? How, how can the Prime Minister break so many promises? Well, they can do that. And, it, and to be fair to the Prime Minister, if circumstances do change, there's an obligation on the government to try and address those particular issues. Mm. Uh, but Tony Abbott didn't give any ground to Gillard on any of that, you know, the carbon tax lie, all of those issues. Circumstances did change through that parliament, mm. and they always will in a hung parliament, they will in, in any parliament. But he's demanding different treatment to the treatment he uh, meted out uh, when he was the opposition leader, and there's a lot of payback going on. Now, that's all very well for the people who play games, but, yeah. but it's not necessarily the best thing for the people and the parliament. Mm. And some of the issues that Joe Hockey's raising are legitimate issues. And I think some of those people in the Senate would, and the Labor Party in the Senate, would actually sit down and talk about them if the way in which they're addressed uh, was changed. And, uh, you know, that's what I think they're going to do anyway. Because it feels as though, as we were saying before, things are changing in, in the world around us. Mm. Um, but there's just a lot of game playing going on in Australian politics. We're not actually getting to any of those things. Do you think that's fair yeah, to say? Well, there's a revenue collapse yeah. going on in terms of the budget. There was a revenue collapse starting when Wayne Swan was trying to get a surplus. Uh, and if certain relationships between the terms of trade and the value of the, our dollar compared to the US, if certain things had been slightly different, Wayne Swan would have achieved a surplus. But the, since then, this revenue collapse has been uh, quite extraordinary. Now, uh, Hockey and Abbott, for instance, they didn't talk about a revenue collapse when Swan was there. They talked about spending too much. Yeah. Uh, so it was waste and mismanagement, more of that rhetoric. This is typical of what you'll get from Labor. They spend too much. Now they're trapped in, exact, well, in a worse situation uh, where that, they've actually spent more again. Yeah. But the revenue's disintegrating on them in terms so of... So by which you mean uh, iron ore prices, yeah. coal mm. prices, all of those things. All of those things. Yeah. Are, uh, and even the other sort of interesting contradiction in all of this is that the Conservatives have been talking for some time about Australia being uncompetitive in terms of the wages, mm -hmm. penalty rates, those sorts of issues. Mm. I heard Joe, Joe Hockey last week saying, well, we're losing revenue because there hasn't been what's called bracket creep. Right. There hasn't been wage increases <laughs> that we would normally factor into our model. Mm. Uh, and when as wages increase, they move into different tax brackets, and there's more revenue for the government. Yeah. So the, 
they're saying one thing yeah. one week and then... So, yeah, why are they fighting for, for things like penalty rates to be scrapped when that will lower their tax intake? Well, I think they've got to make up their mind yeah. whether, whether they want the revenue... Or, or they or, want or, what? Or, or, or they want lower, uh, lower costs of production so we can yeah. compete internationally. But, but people are hearing those two messages and there's this constant flow of two diametrically posed messages and images coming at people and they're saying, what the hell, what are these guys talking about? And they're both terrifying. Both messages are terrifying. That's that talking down of the economy that Joe Hockey's always been accused of. Do you think that's real? Has that had a real effect on anything for Australia? Yeah, well, he's in a difficult position. But, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's helped. I don't think the other day talking about a 35 US dollar iron ore price helps much either. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you're trying to hang on to your your underpants in terms of an iron, air pro- iron ore producer. Yeah. yeah. And he might be right, it might be 35. But if it's going to be 35, why did he say it was going to be 100 a year ago? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. where's the magic in the 35? Now that, if there's no real substance to that, it, it is frightening to say that to people. Mm. Uh, our treasurer believes, you know, no one can operate at 35 US. No. Uh, iron ore price, they'll be operating with negative returns. So. But our Treasurer believes a lot of scary things, apparently. He believes that we can't afford health care, that we can't afford pensions for people at 65. I mean, my dad's a classic example of a working man whose body crumbled at about 58, and he's actually been on Ustart waiting for the pension to kick in because he's blind. So, you know, there's a lot of people like that, and regionally there's a lot of people like that, aren't there? Oh, particularly people who have worked, you know, hard physical work yeah. for their life. Yeah, the body does wear out. You know, I know your fingers get tired on a computer, but uh, yeah. But but it, it, it's not that physically degrading. Uh, yeah, you can't occupation. be a until you're seventy. Yeah. You know. Uh, um, yeah, well, it probably goes back to what I was saying. I have some sympathy for some of the issues that Joe Hockey's raising. I think the nation, and I think the nation is recognising that it's not just going to be boom, boom, boom forever. Yeah. We've got to get into that space, and that's why. I talked about renewable energy and those sorts of things. If you've got control over your own energy costs within your own nation, that's a big start. Yeah. A big start. And to be able to export some of those technologies, etc., is, is, in my view, one of the ways to go. But just relying on coal and iron ore mm. and hoping for the best, well, uh, $35 tells you there's not a lot of money in it for anybody, including the government. Mm. And... Uh, but nonetheless, someone has to pay for our health and education yeah. system. And we've got to really sit down and start to look objectively at what those things are. If you're asking my view, I think they do have to have a look at negative gearing. Now, a lot of people will go off their tree when, as soon as you say that. Uh, they do have to look at some of the superannuation incentives that John Howard put in place. Yeah. He quite deliberately did that because he knew he was going to lose in 2007. So, he, And Costello is as much to blame in all, any of this as anybody else because they left this ticking time bomb, where, which was built into the superannuation packages, that over time was unaffordable. So maybe it's time we've made it affordable again, put it back to what it to what it was before. We had all the money just to throw, throw around. The same applies in uh, many other areas as well, where uh, the 2007, the first day of the election campaign, Howard versus Rudd, for instance, first day, Howard put on the table $30 billion in tax cuts. $30 billion. 
and silly Kevin Rudd the next day under advice said oh we'll have to match it or we won't win Howard knew he wasn't going to win so he left another time bomb sitting there to explode 30 billion dollars in terms of today's deficit and our debt situation and what would be an enormous yeah. benefit so maybe and I know people will go mad out there when they hear this but some people will most people I think would recognise that something's got to be done maybe those tax cuts that shouldn't have been given in the first place have to be redressed now, as soon as Joe Hockey goes to that, uh, Abbott's lied about a lot of things. And one of the things, he said there'd be no, no tax increases yeah. in the government I lead. I won't be like that terrible Labor lady who lied about carbon tax. Uh, even though he knows they've got to do something like that, he's trapped in his own politics. And Bill Shorten will make sure he stays there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not necessarily the best thing for the nation. Right. Now, if I was Bill Shorten, I'd take a risk on this. I'd, I'd say, we're going, to have to, we're going to have to put a bit back into the tin, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. We're just going to go back to 2007. But we had really good times then, and we were able to afford to give you a bit extra. Well, the country needs that bit back now. Mm. And uh, I think most people would, if it's done fairly and squarely, and you know, the people on welfare are taken into regard as well, I think most people would probably accept it. The trick's explaining it, isn't it? I mean, because I think... Most people now are coming to terms with the fact that something needs to be done and some money needs to be given back, but nobody wants it to be their money or their negative gearing or their welfare or their childcare supplement or whatever. So is it about explaining it? People often say that Julia Gillard's big problem was in explaining what she was doing to the electorate. Yeah, one, the of the, one of the failings was that she wasn't a good marketer. Mm. And, uh, and I can understand that a little bit because as soon as you'd go to sell something, Kevin Rudd's people would come out and white hand it. Yeah, really? Uh, yeah, so there was a bit of that going on as well. But I think you're right. I think they've got to come out. And I don't know whether Joe Hocking can do it now. I think he's lost credibility. I know Abbott can't do it, so I don't know who can. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the government side. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not convinced Bill Shorten can do it either. Yeah. But they... But what they need to do is pick both sides of the equation rather than one. And what they did in 2014 is complicate a real issue with a, a political agenda, which was unfair. Everybody saw it as unfair. So to overcome that now is a big step. But I, I think if they actually you know, really gave everybody a little bit of a caning, yeah. uh, everybody will say, well, I'll give up a bit. That's the, the frustration is it feels like our economy's weighted so hard in favour of corporations. Is that yeah. true, do you think, or is that just a... Is that just no, a I, think it is, I think it is true. And Joe's trapped now uh, with those Apple and Google people the other day and uh, Rio Tinto and BHP mm. admitting to sending money offshore, the profits, etc. Et now, the people aren't dumb. Mm. They've, they've seen that. And when someone... Hard, you know, working 50 hours a week or whatever it says, oh, they want to wipe out penalty rates over here. Yeah. Now, I'm not a great fan of penalty rates myself, but nonetheless, they've been part of the structure. But when someone on penalty rates sees that sort of stuff happening, they say, what's all this about? Yeah. What do you want to take take it off me and you let these fellows go to Singapore? And, yeah. Uh, it, it isn't fair, and but terribly difficult for a treasurer to to address nonetheless when you get into this international business. But quite simply though, if Apple want to do business here, they should be paying tax here. 
If they don't want to pay tax here, they shouldn't do business here. Uh, now, people on the conservative side of politics and probably on the Labor side would suggest, oh no, we want competition and as much business here as we can so that we drive consumer prices down. Uh, so that's another argument again. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's extraordinarily complicated for all of them yeah. to deal with, but the simple message is that these people are taking money out of our country mm -hmm. uh, and you're trying to cane the, the pensioner and the, yeah. uh, and the worker. Well, the two things don't, don't gel in the worker's mind. Yeah. So let's say we, we find ourselves in a Tony Windsor prime ministership. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> what what would you do? What would you do? What would be your first sort of opening salvos as Prime Minister of Australia? I know you're going to focus on climate change, on renewables. Yeah, well, I would. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd go there. I think long term, the national broadband network, fibre to the home, yeah. not to the node, uh, has a, an incredible productivity generation capacity. And I'll just give you one example. If I, I'm yeah. aware. I remember asking Malcolm Turnbull, he, he was on about a benefit cost analysis for the National Broadband Network. And I said, Malcolm, what if 5% of those people entering the aged care market were able to stay at home longer, one, two, three years, mm -hmm. because of an electronic blanket in their home, you know, monitoring their health, the vital signs of their health, the utensils in the home, their whereabouts in the home, instant contact with their doctor and uh, chemist and loved ones, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, what would that do to the benefit cost analysis? And he made the point to him, he said, oh, well, a benefit cost analysis is only as good as what you feed into it. Well, with a national broadband network, we don't know what it would be used for yet for, into the future. Yeah. But if you, if you analyse the cost of providing aged care services when you've got this aged baby boomer bubble coming through, and I'll, I'll be part of that, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're enormous costs. You have all these structures and buildings put in place for a 20-year group. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to start to empty out again as the younger people come through. Well, they become older in lesser numbers. Mm. So you can do an economic model on that, and it virtually pays for the national broadband network. Mm. Yeah, it's two hundred thousand dollars a bed for an aged care bed. Mm. It's a hundred dollars a day for someone who could probably still stay at home if they had the right technology. So enormous. But the problem numbers. there is that that's not going to get Malcolm re-elected today. Is that the issue? That you're, as you said when we started talking, you're a big picture guy, you're a future guy. Is anybody else? Because it feels like they make decisions and policies about the next election and not about Australia 50 years from now when they'll all be dead. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to be seen as a superhero either. There's a lot of, I've got a lot of issues. <laughs> and, uh, but, but this is but, a classic example. But, but I think government is supposed to be about the longer term. Yeah. And... Uh, We've degenerated into the short-term cycle. So, you know, how traditionally, it was like the Labor Party were the big picture thinkers, but that's not the case anymore. There are no Paul Keatings looking into the future anymore on the Labor side of things, are there? Not that I see. No. <laughs> not that I see. Maybe, maybe they're there somewhere, but I, I, I don't see them. But, but Combo, for instance, Greg Combo, yeah. and he's out of the building now, but, but he could see the benefits of actually doing something about climate change. Now, I'm a farmer. Mm. Uh, if anybody's going to get hurt 
by increased temperatures and yeah. you know, uh, extreme weather events. It's going to be the farming community. And they've been one of the, the organisations. The National Farmers Federation has been useless on these issues. Yeah, they've been one. Well, they just get taken in by the short-termism of that. They say, yeah. Oh, well, if it's going to cost us money, we can't afford it. Well, what's it going to cost you long-term? Yeah. What's it going to cost your grandkids longer? Oh, well, they're not in... They're not president of the NFF just at the moment. They're not the Prime Minister just at the moment. Yes. They'll look after it when it gets to their turn. Well, you know, that's a pretty disingenuous way of representing a uh, constituency uh, long term. So, but uh, some people will say, oh, it's easier for an independent or a former independent uh, to talk about those things. And, uh, you know, well, I think they're important, and I, th I think the majority of people out there think they're important, but as long as they don't get dudded by them. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. it might be easier for you, but it doesn't mean that you should be the mm. only one doing it. It's because it's hard. I mean, isn't that the point of government, is to make the hard decisions and to, to think about the hardest things to think about? Well, I think right? Gillard did that. You know, a lot of people are critical of Gillard. But if you think of John Howard's years in, in politics, the, the standout reform was the goods and services tax. Yeah. If you think of Gillard during that chaotic, catastrophic, whatever however <laughs> you want to describe it, yeah. hung parliament, there were a number of things. Climate change, NBN, Gonski. Now, Gonski is revolutionary in terms of education. It actually does gets rid of the nonsense of the Catholics versus the private versus the publics. It gets rid of all that. The money follows the kid that needs the extra bit. Yeah. The, um, um, as I said, the Murray-Darling and the, the, the Royal Commission into Child Abuse. There's about six major things mm. that are as significant in terms of reform as the GST was to Howard. Mm. Uh, but people running around and saying, oh, it was dysfunctional and didn't do anything. Uh, a lot of those things were long-term. NBN climate change particularly, but the other ones as well. Uh, Long-term reforms. Uh, I think history will judge her differently to what it does. She wasn't a good marketer. Everybody knows that. She had Kevin Rudd chirping away with a chainsaw as well. So, um, But uh, I think she did try to address some longer-term issues and, uh, and I was pleased to be part of that. Stephen Kukoulos is a former chief executive with Citibank, a global researcher for London's TD Securities, and has advised several Australian Prime Ministers. He has as much personality as he does economic expertise, which is why I like him. I chatted to him from his office in Canberra. Where are we? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
heading in Australia? Where, if yeah. you, you are uniquely positioned with a crystal ball because you're an economist, uh, yep. you're a smart guy, you're an analytical guy, and you know the figures. So right. what do you yep. think? Well, most of those things. Look, I think the, the economy is still in pretty good shape. I think the important context to think about is that we've had 24 glorious years without a recession. Now, not all of those years have been uh, strong and there are some problems that we're seeing. You know, commodity prices are down. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be hurting our economy for the next year or two. Are it they appears. ever coming back up? Not in the next couple of years. There just seems okay. to be so much production of iron ore and coal and all these things that we were uh, selling at a very high price a couple of years ago. So it's not just our local production that's picked up around the world. Uh, so South America and Central Asia oh. and even in Africa, they're churning out this stuff. So there's a big supply side. And simple economics says that when supply goes up, even for a strong demand, mm. the price goes down. And that's exactly what we're going to confront. So the issue for the next couple of years will be how do we transition the economy away from this incredible reliance on mining towards non-mining, and that means services, it means construction, it means tourism, education, and these sorts of things. Yeah, what about demand? I mean, is China going to buy our coal for much longer? And if they don't, is that the whole ball game over? Yeah, look, we've, you've touched on a really important, I'd say it's a long-run issue. It's not a question for the next 12 or 24 months. Okay. It's more a five-year view, but it's obvious to anybody who uh, looks at, well, not just China, but the whole global uh, power supply, I suppose you could call it, is very um, dramatically shifting away from uh, burning coal to provide that electricity. And even though it's taking a while to happen, and while those countries, including Australia, that still has coal-fired uh, generation uh, capacity, we know that most new capacity will be in the form of renewable, which mm. is solar, which is wind and these sorts of things. And so you would you would have to be a bit concerned that over the next couple of years that once these old power stations sort of fall by the wayside and as the efficiency of renewables pick up, you know, the coal industry is heading for, um, you know, troubled times. There's just such such a huge supply of coal again around the world that, mm. um, you know, it's hard to imagine the price picking up and there's even a concern that the amount of tonnage that we export will start to top out in the next couple of years. And we know that the government we've got now in Australia is sort of ideologically opposed to renewables. Um, is that an overstatement of their position? Uh, no, it's not an overstatement. <laughs> it's a real concern. Because, right. So, um, yeah, where do we go with that? Look, it, it, it's one of those ones where, uh, as an economist, you'd say, well, look, the market will sort itself out. Yeah. But it, like... But there, but there is a case to be made for industries that are in their infancy, and I still would argue that a lot of the renewables are in their infancy. Yeah, the, mm. the technological change on how efficient solar panels are, for example, has changed dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years, that for the same square meterage of solar uh, panels, you're getting something like 20 times more electricity generated because technology is just so strong. And um, so you'd, you'd sort of say that there is a case to be made for providing a little bit of... Um, Assistance, maybe not necessarily financial assistance, but through the way um, you know, the new suburbs around the country or the new towns and cities are being sort of organised, that you'd be having a focus on renewables rather than you know cranking up your output of coal burning sort of electricity generation. And the fact that the government's not all that interested in um, uh, the renewables, you know, there's a there is a coal mining industry in Australia and they don't want to see it happen either. So, you know, there's this whole sort of scenario where, uh, you know, I, I fear that we do need 
things like a price on carbon. We do need to see consumers in the business sector moving towards renewables, even more than they currently have been doing. What impact do you think it would have on Australia if we really start to lag behind the rest of the world in terms of renewables? Well, yeah, the, the, the funny thing is, uh, and again, one of the issues that Australia has benefited from with this you know, near quarter century without a recession is that we are actually pretty good at doing a lot of things. We are better than most people at digging stuff out of the ground. Our agricultural industry is very efficient. Things like our you know, university exports, that is foreign students coming yeah. here. Yeah, we're good at all that sort of stuff, and that's really, really important. The concern would be is would be if the rest of the world continues, pardon the pun, powering ahead yeah. with its uh, use of renewable energy, and we're lagging, just you know, digging up coal and sticking it in a furnace. Um, yeah, that's not very high value add, and we'd lose our efficiency. And what that means is that our firms would inevitably end up be paying more for their power and you lose your efficiency. So mm-hmm. our ability to compete uh, with the global economy, you know, the low-cost producers around Asia and uh, um, even just on, on uh, the availability of other services exports, we, we, we lose some of our competitive position if we don't keep up with the rest of the world, let alone lead the rest of the world, which we should be doing too. Mm. And when it comes to sort of normal Australians um, and our everyday, everyday lives, Joe Hockey famously said the age of entitlement is over. Where do you think our lifestyles are heading in this country? Yeah, look, he was, he was partly correct. Yeah. You know, there, is, there is an issue that, um, and, and this is not a criticism of people, because, of course, people want the government to provide a good um, aged care for their, for their parents. They want good health care for their whole family. They want a decent education system for their kids. You know, it's, and it's not a cliche to say that, but it's, but it's true. We do need the government to provide those services and even things like uh, disability care and, you know, we want them to build infrastructure so we've got good roads and airports and all that sort of stuff. It costs an awful lot of money. Um, so the question that I think Mr Hockey was sort of touching on with that entitlement speech uh, a little while back was, Okay, we can still provide some of those things, but maybe we just have to do a couple of things. Make sure that it's fair in terms of you know people on you know a huge amount of money or with you know million multi million dollar houses not getting pensions. Yeah. So to make sure that it's fair and equitable. So there is that question of who is entitled to what, and you know, and this is where their previous budget failed so badly. They they slugged the low income earners mm-hmm. and let the very wealthy and high income earners get away with uh, very little contribution to. Um, you know, repairing the budget, if you like. So I think there's a question of, you know, maybe we still want to have these, you know, first-class, world-best um, services provided by the government. But first of all, we may have to get some of the middle to upper income people paying a little bit for those services, at least putting their hand in the pocket for past payment of them. Or we have to ensure that uh, things like superannuation mean that, you know, if we can ramp that up, it means that, you know, when all of us retire in 10, 15, 20 years' time, that we don't call on the budget so that we can have this position where, you know, we, we, we have a good, comfortable lifestyle, but we also have the benefit of, of having the budget position in pretty good shape. Well, speaking of people contributing, we know that big business globally is really hard to, to sort of tie down in terms of paying their tax. Is, that, is there any chance that's ever going to get easier? Is it ever, are we ever going to find a way to get the tax out of these big corporations? Yes, that's something that I looked at a couple of years ago, um, and it's still obviously doing the rounds. It is a very difficult one because, by definition, these big companies have got multinational businesses set up in, you know, the Cayman Islands yeah. and in Singapore and Ireland and all these other tax havens. And uh, 
and even for our big local companies, you know, the, I won't name them, but yeah, the big companies, they've got operations set up so that even though they're making money in Australia, they somehow shuffle the money to a low tax area so we don't collect the money. Yeah, now, and everyone sort of is, says, everyone says, to, you know, yeah. that the, the, the Joe Hockey should be getting that tax. We shouldn't have to pay uh, him any more tax. He needs to go and get that tax. He should. The problem is you need all the other countries of the world to comply mm. with it. And this is why these tax havens have... Um, have flourished because if we put on a tax on these companies, then simply they'll just continue to funnel their money overseas. It's very easy for them to do while there are these tax breaks in other countries. So this is where the G20 initiative uh, last year, I think it was, was was good. It was getting the big countries in the world to sort of get together and say, okay, let's work out a system where these big companies can pay their tax on money made within a particular national border. You know, it's not, this problem isn't just an Australian one. It's a problem dogging a lot of the European countries who have clearly got big budget deficits and they can't get enough tax revenue. It's the same in the UK, Canada, whatever. So the question's got to be, how do we get a tax structure change and reforming the tax system so that when big multinational company, I'll just say XYZ, <laughs> um, makes a billion dollars of sales in Australia that they pay their fair share of tax on that turnover, not shuffle the money back to Ireland and, and pay, you know, literally a, a few um, decimal points of tax to the tax office here, which actually hurts the Australian people because we have to pay more tax to pay for those services. Mm, absolutely. And now the other issue, I don't know if you even have a perspective on this. Maybe I'm completely overreacting because my dad was a taxi driver and now I, I see that we're – they reckon we're going to have driverless cars in Australia in a decade. And I think, well, is that going to be the end of taxi drivers and truck drivers and certain um, occupations like that? Do you do you think that there are some occupations that are about to disappear from Australia? Well, there may be. And it, first of all, I would say that I embrace new technology. There's nothing to be scared of. You know, we don't have yeah. blacksmiths making horseshoes. <laughs> oh, we do for horse racing, but, you know, but yeah. for, we don't have... Um, buggies made for horse and buggies. Yeah, we've moved on. We have cars and things like that. Yeah. So I'm all for technology. I think it's good. Um, now, whether we don't have taxi drivers and these sorts of things in the years to come, so be it. We don't want to sort of um, uh, not embrace this new technology and these new wonderful um, uh, ability of our economy to be more efficient. But now, I suppose we, we what I'm... Technology. But, but my, point, my point would be, Michelle, that we've got to make sure that we have in place the policies that allow other parts of the economy yeah. to grow, to allow services. Again, I'll, I'll go back to a couple of my favourites, education exports. You know, getting foreign students to study here is fantastic, not only for the people who are their tutors and their lecturers, but they live here. They live in a house. They buy food here. They do stuff here. They, you know, um, it, 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 the, the positive effect on the economy of those sorts of things is huge. We've now got a million... Uh, Tourists from China visiting Australia each year. Let's make that one and a half million and two million. They stay at our hotels, drink our lovely wine and mm. eat our lovely food and see our sights. They spend lots of money here. So while the taxi drivers in the future may not be, you know, all that well employed because we have driverless cars, heaven forbid, but we're going to have uh, jobs in other parts of the economy that will pick up the slack as technology inevitably um, changes over over the course of the next five, ten, twenty years. Gordo, you don't you don't think we're on the precipice of being sort of outdone by robots? <laughs> well, I I somehow doubt it. You know, people still want to be busy. You know, maybe we'll have a boom industry and robot <laughs> maintenance and goodness knows what. Well, but, you know what um, I always think we're all, always going to need plumbers, Stephen. You we know? are. Yeah. Oh, indeed. Yes, we we, we need plumbers and we need. Uh, you know, people just to entertain us. To, you know, the, the other thing that 
sort of a bit, bit of a hidden one in, in the general category of services is entertainment. Mm. Um, you know, we've got a pretty strong entertainment sector here. People, uh, if they have all this leisure time, what do they do? They want to see shows. They want to see music. They want to see entertainment. They want to watch telly. They want to go to the sport. You know, so the ability of the economy to transition away from, you know, maybe driving taxis and to doing something in these industries will be fantastic. But this is where the government's got to provide a good education system, a good retraining system. Look, not everyone's going to be a rocket scientist or a childcare worker in years to come, mm. but we've got to have the flexible workforce so that when, you know, perhaps taxi drivers uh, are increasingly obsolete, we do move to, you know, another part that those workers are not just thrown on the scrap heap, that they can actually do something uh, constructive, not only for the uh, good of the economy, but for their own personal benefit as well. Well, I tell you what, on a prediction of a booming entertainment industry that is music to my ears, Stephen Kukoulos, <laughs> I will let you go. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the chat. Numbers, numbers, numbers. We've become kind of obsessed with numbers in Australia. In a way, I don't remember us ever being before. Everyone's an expert now, you know, on everything from the deficit slash surplus to negative gearing to corporate tax. But there's something else we're obsessed with, and that's immigration. Specifically, brown immigration. More specifically, brown Muslim immigration. So I asked my old pal, comedian Amar Rahman, to stop by for a chat about where he sees Australia now and into the future. Just in general or like culturally or... All of those things. Like what, is there anything that worries you? I suppose that's where people normally start this conversation. When you say, where's Australia going? They go, oh, well, there's too many bloody this and there's not enough bloody (laughs) that. You know, so I think people normally come from what they're worried or afraid of. I mean, I'm not afraid of it, but I think the more I travel, I mean, I've been traveling my whole life, but but just the more I've been traveling recently to the UK and the US, like I just keep, like it just keeps bringing home to me the feeling how far behind we are culturally in Australia when it comes to diversity and talking about race, like, it's like not just like five years behind, I mean like, like 30 years behind. Really? Yeah. Um, it's just... It, and it's not that there's no racism in places like the UK and the US, but it's just that for whatever reason, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons, but just in pop culture, in the media, like you can talk about race more easily than you can in Australia. And I feel like just if you mention race in any way in Australia, just there's just alarm bells everywhere. People yeah. freak out. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I just, do. It's like red alert. It's just like, oh my God, are we got like... We can only do this if we've got a separate program dedicated to this hot button issue. You know, it's just not something you can bring up casually in conversation at all. We are like on paper, we're so diverse. Mm. It's not that there's no minorities here. We've got everyone lives here. Literally everyone from around the world lives mm. in Australia, which is the other thing when I go overseas that people don't know that. People don't, me being Australian is weird to them. Really? Because all they've seen is. Home and Away and Crocodile Hunter and Crocodile Crocodile Dundee is still a thing overseas. Really? Like it's still a thing. And the Hemsworths and that yeah, sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just, you know, blonde wow. surf culture, that kind of thing is mm. still like, that's still the international kind of view of Australia. Where do you think we're heading? Are we getting better? Are we getting more uptight? I think, well, I think social media has opened up a space to yeah. talk about this stuff. Um, so I think there's there's definitely a lot more criticism uh, of the fact that racism talked about or that people aren't represented wherever, but whether that translates into policy or people actually getting jobs, you know, 
in different places. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Because I feel like, you know, like my social media is just like the same article 10 times in a row. Yeah. There's not enough, you know, people of color on TV or in movies or, you know, it's just the same thing being recycled again and again. I don't know if that actually changes, you know, directors or producers' decisions when it's time to cast and, and that kind of thing. The ABC has released a couple of of uh, Aboriginal, you know, TV shows in yeah. the last couple of months. And obviously Nazim's, you know, Legally Brown is huge on SBS. Definitely. So is there a chance we're getting somewhere positive? Well, I mean, the thing is, there's always exceptions to the rule. Okay. Right? So sure, you know, ABC's... They've done two seasons, I think, of Red for Now. Yeah, and then Black there's Comedy. 8 Triple M, the yeah. um, radio station sitcom, yep. Uh, you know, and we've got NITV, and Nazim's done great on SBS. At the same time, SBS just sacked someone yes. for publishing an article on their private social media about how it's not diverse. The media can't get away with having only white content. No. Um, so the question is, are we going to keep having token content, or are people going to end up having real jobs and moving further and further up in terms of actual decision-making power, whether they actually get to be program directors and content directors and stuff like that. I always think about newsreaders. I always think about, you know, we'll know we've gotten somewhere when there's a newsreader on a mainstream free-to-air channel in Australia at 6pm who is not white. Which honestly, like you, and, and and that's a good that's a good barometer, and I feel like that's a long way away. You're right. I mean, in England, in For, America, yeah, those, oh, you know, I mean, everywhere in the in the world that happens. Yeah. In New Zealand, that happens. So the, this is the thing, and overseas, people will be like, "Oh well, we've got a black newsreader or a brown newsreader." Well, that's just that's tokenism. We are not even at the point in Australia <laughs> yeah. where we can talk about tokenism because there's not enough tokenism yet. Yeah, not enough tokens. <laughs> what about? The obvious example of being a Muslim Australian. Now, I am old enough to remember a time before 2001 when <laughs> people didn't know Muslims about Muslims. Didn't exist. They didn't exist. We didn't exist. My parents, if, if, if someone had asked my family and I living in Queensland, regional Queensland. What's a Muslim? No idea. But certainly no fear or hatred of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had plenty of racism growing up. None of it was about being Muslim. <laughs> No, and I never thought I'd be nostalgic yeah. for that old racism <laughs> where people just hated my skin. Yeah. But but it's it's, it's reality. And you think about it now, it's 2015. Next year will be 2016. Mm. It'll be 15 years since 9-11. There'll be kids as old as 15 who have only lived in the war on terror. I know. Like there'll be Muslim kids who their entire lives yeah. have only seen themselves on TV being presented as a suspicious threat. And non-Muslim only... kids who have only yeah. seen Muslims presented that way yeah. and and don't know th- don't know them any other way but yeah. to be feared. Yeah. How real in our community is is the threat to young people on social media? And I know I sound like an old lady asking you that question, but I'm asking you because what? you're young, yeah. you're cool. I know you're connected. <laughs> I know you're connected with Islamic youth in Australia. I know they look up to you. Honestly, I mean that doesn't even when I when I when I'm on social media, I'm not thinking, "Oh my god, ISIS." Like the biggest thing I see with social media is like sexualization of young women and like this obsession with selfies, how to make yourself look better. Um just yeah, revenge porn, like just yeah. the 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 Gender Pandora's box that has been opened with social media is that for me, you know, when I have kids, like that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. That's not security stuff, not terrorism. Just like if I have a son or daughter, like the kinds of things that 
I will not be able to stop them from seeing and the kinds of things that I'm not going to be able to stop them from being influenced by because they're going to have a smartphone in their hand and they're going to have Such access. A good point. It goes back- not, not just to images and videos, but just to a culture, like a culture that is obsessed with appearance yeah. um, and celebrity. And it goes back to the idea that, yes, there is something to be concerned about, about our children being recruited by ISIS. But you know what's happening to more <laughs> of our children? You know what's happening to a lot of our children is they are getting these really weird ideas about their sexuality, yeah, about their... told to hate their bodies, About basically. gender, about yeah. all of that. And last week there was a report released in which, like, you know, something one in four teenage girls said that she thought it was okay if a man slapped her when he was drunk. Oh, my God. Right? And so it feels as though actually in the background this explosion is happening of sort of um, gender politics is going backwards and... Yeah. Or, or just being amplified. Yeah. Like, we, I think... A lot of times we think, oh, social media is, you know, it's in the palm of your hand, so you've got the power to control it. No, mm. we're not in control of social media. Just That's not to say that it's useless. Like it has, like I said, it's opened up. It's given a lot of people like real voices mm. and real power. But at the end of the day, it's still, you know, it's still so easy to manipulate. And it still reflects what the majority sees yeah, and what the majority thinks. What an interesting insight into the worries of a young Muslim man in Australia. But then, Amir Rahman is a pretty extraordinary young man, and there's much, much more to that conversation. It'll be uploaded as its own podcast in a couple of weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 